0: And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin, sponsored by GEHA. Thanks for joining us on this Monday, November 27th, 2023. Seven minutes past the hour. I'm Jared Serbu, filling in for Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian. Our digital editors, Daisy Thornton and Dearest Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, a big retirement date is coming soon. What you need to do to prepare. Also, military life is a tough job for the whole family. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. First up, though, Congress avoids a government shutdown around Thanksgiving with another continuing resolution. But even CRs affect military service members, civilian federal workers and their families. The effects could be felt across government in the Defense Department and other agencies. The common thread is the human impact it has. Federal News Network's Kirsten Eric has been writing about it and joins us now with some details. Hi, Kirsten.
1: Hi, excited to talk about this topic.
0: So, so let's talk broadly about sort of government-wide stuff. What's the general impact? What's the pattern of all these CRs on agencies?
1: So when we talk about funding and shutdowns or continuing resolutions, the focus can tend to be on the numbers, you know, but these have a really big impact on agencies' workforce, whether it's the uncertainty that several continuing resolutions make or the
0: extra work and
1: planning that's created as a result. It can also impact morale.
0: And I know in your recent story, you focused quite a bit on, on the DOD-specific impacts, and including to military members. How, how, when, he, when, when, you, when we drill down on DOD specifically, what are some of the effects?
1: Right. So one example is it really impacts the quality of life for service members. So a recent Government Accountability Office report found that many barracks are in poor condition with mold, broken heating or cooling systems, sewage overflow, to name a few things. There was also a recent congressional hearing on this topic. And GAO found that one of the reasons for the poor conditions is the chronic underfunding and neglect. Now, while DOD is trying to fix this with a multi-year investment strategy, continuing resolutions can make these conditions worse by delaying funding and causing deferred maintenance. Another example is the impact this can have on child care, particularly if there's a 1% budget cut as a result of sequestration. This will likely impact civilian workers who can often work in the childcare facilities. There can also be an impact on industry. It's unlikely that industry will invest in something without a steady demand signal. And Secretary of the Air Force Frank Kendall compares all the continuing resolutions to a race.
2: If you're doing a race that's a mile long, we're essentially giving away a quarter mile head start to the other side. Quarter mile. If you add up over four years, those four periods of three months that we customarily now don't have appropriations or authorizations, that's like a quarter of our time. You're giving away an inquired lap in a four-lap race to the other side to move ahead while you're sitting still. That makes no sense whatsoever.
1: So that was Air Force Secretary Frank Kendall. And he also says that since agencies cannot spend money that they don't have, the Air Force cannot increase funding for programs It's ready to ramp up, for instance, increasing production production rates.
2: A good example of that is our C-3 battle management system, the advanced battle management system, which is the Air Force and Space Force's part of joint all-domain command and control. We intend to double the budget for that effort in 24. So we would be kept at half the rate at which we're prepared to spend if the bills don't pass or until they pass. So that that has a big impact. You can't hire people. You can't put contracts in place. And if you do, you have to limit the scope of work of them. In the case of production programs, you can't do multi-years and you can't increase production rates in programs where you'd plan to do that. So it just holds us back. It's like a, it's an anchor keeping us moving forward.
0: Once again, that's Air Force Secretary Frank Kendall, and we are talking with Federal News Network's Kirsten Eric. And Kirsten, then looking outside DOD, what are some of the effects that you're hearing about on these compounding CRs on, on civilian agencies?
1: Right. So continuing resolutions can lead to more work and delayed hiring, contracts, and grants. They can also cause more uncertainty and limited management options. CRs can also lead to inefficiencies and delays in hiring, for example. They can cause repetitive work. They also hinder innovation and modernization efforts and prevent new programs from starting. If there's a shutdown, basic government functions are reduced or stopped. For example, like national parks are closed, food safety inspections stop, and there could be disruptions to air travel, and some employees may be furloughed.
0: And of course, all this gets much worse if there's an, an actual government shutdown. And I know you've been talking to some folks who were impacted by the last uh, last one that affected DOD back in 2013. What, what have they been telling you about what that, what that was like?
1: Right. So it has a large impact on military service members and civilian DOD workers. So for example, civilians may be furloughed, which can impact morale and workload. I spoke with John Polovchek who is currently an executive director at Ernst & Young. He's a retired Navy rear admiral who was also the supply chain lead on the White House Coronavirus Task Force and Joint Staff Vice Director for Logistics. During the 2013 shutdown, he was comptroller for Fleet Forces Command, and he told me a story about the impact of the shutdown on one of his coworkers.
3: I had an office manager. She was a GS-9, I think. She managed calendars for for me and my uh my deputy she managed the workflow things coming in from the front office that had to be chopped through the comptroller. she also managed some additional workflows for the for the office for keeping the trains running on time and financial reviews and other things. so I mean she was a you know an integral employee, and the run up to sequestration she was out of her mind and stress uh which really impacted her performance and you know she single a mother taking care of her taking care of her mother and her only outlet was was a horse that she had and she was so stressed by the furlough that she made a decision to get rid of the horse because she wasn't sure that she was if she was furloughed that she was going to be able to take care of it
1: that was John Polovchak from Ernst Young. So you can really see how, you know, from his story of his coworker, how that has impacted not only his coworker, coworker, but that memory stuck with him for a decade. This really highlights the impact of shutdowns, especially if there's furloughs and people are not sure when or if they will get their next paycheck or uncertain how they will make ends meet. And this can also, the uncertainty, both from a shutdown, also carries with several continuing resolutions.
0: All right, Federal News Network's Kirsten Eric. Thanks very much, Kirsten. Thanks, Jared. And you can find more in her story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still ahead on Federal News Network, military life is a tough job for the whole family. That's next on The Federal Drive with Tom Temen on Federal News Network. I'm Jared Serbu filling in for Tom.
4: We are the nation's largest integrated health care system. Providing life-changing care to over 9 million veterans.
0: Our hands
5: are busy, competent, skilled, healing, helping, and friendly. A place where diverse teams come together hand-in-hand hand to provide full, patient-centered care. Working in state-of-the-art facilities with influential leaders in healthcare, all with a single goal in mind, to help veterans heal, recover, and get their lives back in a place where everyone plays a part and where your efforts are truly appreciated, a place so innovative and forward-thinking that we're rebuilding hands and where even robots lend a hand.
4: Join hands with us. Learn more at vacareers.va.gov.
0: Back on the Federal Drive with Tom Tenen on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. I'm Jared Serbu filling in for Tom. We all know military life can present challenges for a family. Having to constantly move from one city to another can lead to child care issues, as well as trouble for the military spouse to find a job at a new location. Way above the national average, military spouses register an unemployment rate, more than 20%. Since 2009, an organization called Blue Star Families is trying to help military families navigate the challenges they will undoubtedly face. Co-founder and CEO of Blue Star Families, Kathy roth Duque, recently talked with Federal Drive executive producer Eric White.
6: We support military and veteran families. Obviously, the well-being of military families, top of mind, financial security, and that means military spouse employment is a number one issue. But it really speaks to our overall military and national security, too because the ability for military families to have financial security enables the service member to stay and keep serving when the family doesn't have financial security. This is number one reason why otherwise promotable people leave, is to get those two incomes that most American families need that's so hard to get when you're serving in the military. Blue Star families, we do a light on this issue first back in 2010, 2011. Others, the DOD, other organizations have validated our finding. Consistently, military spouses have had an unemployment rate in the 20 to 26% level consistently ever since then. As unemployment has improved for the nation, it has not for military families. And honestly, despite all of the money that has been spent and attention that's been spent on the last 10 years, it has not improved.
7: Is opening up the idea of, you know, as more jobs become accessible, not necessarily having to work in a location could be very, very helpful for folks that are told to pick up and move every so often? Do you foresee that maybe more telework could be the answer to finally getting those numbers down?
6: Yes, I do. I think this is exactly the kind of intervention that's going to make a difference. You know, Blue Star families, we look at not only the problems, but what are the likely solutions. And what we see people telling us, well, you know, first of all, it's the military lifestyle that's the barrier to work. Because military spouses twice as educated as their civilian counterparts. These are really work ready people. But the frequent moves, the work service members' job responsibilities, and the lack of child care that comes along with those frequent moves are the real barriers. Setting childcare aside, because that is for many people the number one issue. In our surveys, military spouses identify remote work as being the number one thing that would help them work the way they want to. 69 percent of military spouses in our survey say that they would like to work remotely. And then when we ask those who have jobs that are amenable to telework, not every job is, right? School teacher can't telework. Nurse can't telework. But if you are in a profession that could allow for teleworking, like, you know, radio personality, for instance, or a nonprofit executive, for instance, 85% of spouses who have those kinds of professions say they would like to telecommute, and they are not telecommuting.
7: So you all are obviously supporting the Telework Reform Act that has been brought forth in the Senate. What specifically about it do you all favor other than, you know, them saying, yes, we support this? How would it actually get military spouses in those roles with the federal government where telework is okay?
6: Yeah. The Telework Act is a fantastic act. We 100% support it. By targeting military spouses as a particular class to get these jobs, it makes it much easier for people to navigate the federal hiring system, which, as you may know, is a very cumbersome process. And I think it helps the hiring authorities cut through some of the confusion on the part of the hiring managers to find those folks Federal jobs are great jobs for military spouses. We're already involved in serving the nation as military families, so serving the government is very compatible, uh, tend to be very mission-driven people. It works well with the overall family lifestyle. So this job, by focusing on the federal government, does something that Congress can do. You can't do that very easily with the private sector, but you can affect the government. And then the government can create standards that can help the private sector follow. And that's something that we at Blue Star Families are doing. We are going to be, on December 6th, unveiling an effort to challenge the private sector to follow along with the progress that's been made on the government sector to make jobs, create the conditions in private sector jobs to allow military spouses to work to allow for the kind of security, stability, prosperity, and freedom we need for those private sector companies to thrive.
7: Yeah, you know, telework exploded, obviously, during and now in the after days of the pandemic. I'm curious on what you all were hearing from military spouses. You said, you know, the numbers didn't really change. Were they really not affected (laughs) as much by the pandemic as well, just because, you know, they weren't already in roles that would have been closed down due to it?
6: I think that's a great point, Eric. They weren't already in those roles that would have been closed down. So they were, you know, they were facing that unemployment. The child care still is a problem. Even if you're working remotely, you still need child care. You can't do your job if, if you have to mind your children, too. You know, one of the things we point out is that there's a lot of interlocking issues, but we can solve them. That wide availability of telework and the ease of the families being able to find that work is an important step to getting us to where we need to be.
7: All right. And so let's focus on Congress. You talked about something that's in Congress that you all are in favor of. There is a possibility of another shutdown coming. I'm curious on what your organization's stance was on that and how that may also affect the military family with the uncertainty that comes with that.
6: Yeah, I mean, we're vigorously fighting the idea of a a shutdown vigorously because it is devastating to military families. First of all, a third of military families have less than $3,000 in savings, and that will not get you through a month of not getting paid. That will not allow you to pay your rent and your child care if you have it or your food bill. So then everything goes on credit cards. A lot of times things are on credit cards already because that's where they go when you move. And so you then create a, a financial crisis for people. But even more than that is the psychological discouragement that our civilian leaders aren't able to do their job. You know, when people, families like mine, families like the 275,000 members of Blue Star Families be like, we're willing to put everything on the line to do our job for this nation. And yet these folks in Congress are not able to just do their job. The very basic part of their job is to pass a budget. We're not telling you What that should look like, just pass it. Because it's not just the salaries, it's also having the missions frozen, having the trainings frozen, having the resupply of arms frozen. These are the the building blocks of how we do our job. And then on top of it, this devastating so called promotion block is really a leadership block. I think you saw this terrible thing that our commandant collapsed, holding down two jobs. Because we haven't been able to properly promote people while we've got war breaking out all all over the world had a role to play in that. You think having the Fifth Fleet in the Mediterranean without a commanding officer able to be promoted. So all these things undermine the military and their families' sense that we should be putting ourselves on the line for this political leadership. We need to straighten this out.
7: And just finishing up on other things that you all are hoping for, I was hearing a recurring pattern of child care. Um, There has been some movement in the Pentagon to try and get more child care options available to military families. But what are you all looking for on that front uh, when you talk to leadership in uh, Washington?
6: Yeah, we have a very exciting initiative that we've been exploring we're not quite ready to unveil, but I'm I'm looking forward to when we can and and Eric you'll be among the first that we let know about it. I think it's time for us to face that this isn't a little fix. It's a structural issue throughout the country, but certainly for our military. Thirty percent of the people coming into the military are female. We do need to have a next generation. We need to let people have children. (laughs) We need to work when we have children, right? So we have an idea. We've been working on it with some of our friends in Congress and some of our partners in the White House. We think it'll create structural change along the lines of the way that the GI Bill created structural change. So we think it's time for bold solutions. Stand by.
7: Yeah, and not to mention, most people who join the military do it because their mom or dad served, right? Yeah. yeah,
6: if we want that future class of military people, we're going to have to give birth to them.
0: Kathy roth Duque is the co-founder and CEO of Blue Star Families. She talked with Federal Drive executive producer Eric White. To find this interview at our website, go to federalnewsnetwork.com slash drive. Still ahead on Federal News Network, a big retirement date is coming soon. What you need to do to prepare. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin on Federal News Network. I'm Jared Serbu, filling in for
8: Tom. Put a frog in a pot of boiling water and it'll jump right out. But put a frog in a pot of cool water and slowly heat it up, that frog will boil. As a metaphor for us and all that we go through as veterans, it's a story that rings true. We learn to endure the heat in silence. We apply what we learn to life, the bills, the job, the family, things we're expected to handle with ease. When life heats up around us, we just try to stay afloat. We let the water boil. Reaching out isn't easy, but you've never been interested in easy. You join because you are not afraid of hard work. You are not a frog. If you or a veteran you know need support, don't wait until the water boils. Reach out. Find resources at va.gov reach. That's va.gov reach. Brought to you by the United States Department of Veterans Affairs and the Ad Council. Back at the
0: Federal Drive with Tom Temin on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Tom Temin is away. I'm Jared Serbu filling in. Lots of people put a neatly tied ending to their federal careers by retiring on December 31st. Next New Year's Day is a Monday, so you could wake up and have a mimosa, but in the next several weeks, you've got some serious financial planning to do. Details now on that from a happy federal retiree, Abe Grungold, the owner of AG Financial
9: Services. He spoke with Tom Temen. And Abe, I guess let's start with, is December 31st one of those popular dates?
4: Yes, Tom, December 31st is a popular date to retire because you can start the new year in a new tax profile as a retiree. It also helps you with the annual leave that you will receive at the end of the year. And December 31st is an important day because it usually is the last day of a pay period in the year in which you can retire. And that's important to sort of go out in a new pay period so you don't have to have a lag in receiving that first retirement check that you will not receive until February 1st.
9: Right, assuming OPM can figure it out by February 1st, because sometimes it takes a little longer than that too, doesn't it?
4: The final payment would come sometime later, but your interim payment would start February 1st, which is
9: 70%
4: of what you are estimated to get for
9: an annuity. It's funny that they don't start figuring it out three months before you retire <laughs> and they're ready to go when you do retire. Hey, I think I just solved their problem. Tom, there
4: is an excellent reason for that because your retirement does not begin until you have officially left your agency. You have to officially walk out the door and that's when your retirement application is sent to OPM from your agency. Now, as a federal employee, let's say you you have some reservations about retiring. You have until four o'clock on December 31st to change your mind. So there are people that do do that.
9: Got it. Well, when I have reservations on retiring, they'll be for a very good steakhouse, I think. <laughs> Presuming you've gone through the course and you've made your Medicare, all the, all that jazz. You have to select for yourself. But it's not done yet, though, is it? You've got some work to do.
4: Well, Tom, you know, you spend 20 to 30 years in a federal career. You should spend two months on preparing your federal retirement application, which is 14 pages long. You should not rush through it. You need to answer every question and you need to gather All the information that's necessary to fill out that document. And it's so important to review something called the EOPF, your official personnel folder that contains every document for your entire federal career. It's important to review all of it.
9: And what is the state of those documents these days? Because if you started a long time ago, stuff might have been on paper. And is it a combination of electronic and paper?
4: Well, some agencies still have the hard copy folder and a lot of agencies have transferred that hard copy folder into an electronic PDF that if your agency has some sort of a sophisticated HR system, you can download your EOPF and to a PDF. And it should be in chronological form from the first day that you applied with your application with the government to the present. And it should really be in chronological form. Now, some agencies may still have the old hard copy, and you should be able to get access to it if necessary.
9: Just to be clear, the EOPF is not a form, but you need that information for the form.
4: The EOPF is All the forms that you have filled out during your federal career, health insurance, life insurance, the actual form itself, it's kept in a folder, and that's what's called your personnel folder.
9: And so that's the the information you need for the SF-3107 then.
4: Yeah, the SF-3107 is the actual application to retire. And if you need to go back historically The EOPF has that information. But historically, really what you need are all the dates of service for every agency that you have worked for, part-time or full-time during your federal career.
9: We're speaking with Abe Grungold. He is a federal retired manager himself and also owner of AG Financial Services. So if you are starting out in your career and you plan to be around a while, I guess maybe good advice is to make your own copies of everything that's going into that EOPF just in case you would have a backup copy of your own.
4: Certainly, I kept many, many copies of documents that I had filled out during my 36 years in the government, but the best way is to download that EOPF, and I think mine was somewhere around 250 pages. Of documents that I had filled out in 36 years. And you can go through it. It's really kind of reminiscing through your federal career to go back through those early records, but it will have everything in there and it will help you to fill out your federal retirement application.
9: Now, that's one step. And the most important step is filling out that SF3107 And at only 14 pages, it's kind of a piker compared to some of the SF forms, you know. But nevertheless, you got to get the details right. But that's not the only thing you do. What's a good policy for timing of notifying your agency, notifying the government that you would like to retire?
4: Well, I have seen people notify their agency one day and retire at the end of the day. And they still were able to fill out their 14-page application. But the really best way to do it is several months ahead of time because you need to fill out the form. You need to contact your HR department to schedule an appointment. They need to go over it with you. And it's sort of a back and forth to make sure that you have filled out every question correctly and every person is different. And a lot of the questions depends on certain choices that you make. And those choices can have an effect on you, which could be hundreds of dollars or thousands of dollars, depending on the decision that you make. So it is important to go over each and every question on that form.
9: Yes, if you're calculating, say, your high threes or planning on your high salaries, That could affect your timing, too. Wouldn't you want a full year of getting that high salary?
4: Yes, you definitely want your high three calculated. But what's more important is to calculate every time period that you were working for the government, because that's an important part of the formula. So let's say you have figured out that you have 30 years of federal service, but then let's say you worked one year in the Peace Corps, or you work for a judge in law school, and you have forgotten those time periods, those time periods, if you document them on your federal retirement application, it will increase the value of your annuity.
9: And with respect to having OPM calculate your final annuity, are there common or make sure you avoid types of errors that you can make on that form that could get it hung up in OPM?
4: Yes. Certainly, if you have any gaps in your federal career, so let's say you worked for seven years, you left for a year, and then you came back, they may follow up with you to verify that that actually happened. And another big problem that holds the final payment from OPM is if you have experienced a divorce. And if you have a divorce, you need to have all your paperwork attached to your federal retirement application because you will be owed something possibly to your uh, ex-spouse and OPM make sure that those payments are sent to the ex-spouse. So yes, you have to have those documents in those attachments.
9: And earlier you said there is that phenomenon of some people deciding as the date approaches, they get cold feet, and so they postpone. And what happens if you change your mind?
4: Yes. So let's take the example of someone who's interested in retiring December 31st, and they are really are not sure about that so there are other dates during the year which are beneficial to federal employees and let's say they want to work another couple of months and they want to go to the end of February or they want to go to the end of July because they're really not sure about retiring. A lot of people can retire at age 57 when they meet their minimum retirement age and then they realize that they don't know what they're going to do with themselves when they do retire. So then they have doubts about retiring. And that's normal. That's normal for anyone. So, yes, you can pull back your retirement application on the last day, December 31st, and say, look, I want to hold off. Yeah, I mean, that's a decision people make.
0: Abe Grungold is a retired federal manager and owner of AG Financial Services. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. And you can hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Still ahead on Federal News Network, at least three different impending deadlines for members of Congress. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Tenen on Federal News Radio. I'm Jared Serbu filling in for Tom.
4: When we need help, we turn to government. When government needs help, they turn to Federal News Network.
0: For news on the federal pay raise. To learn how other agencies handle IT modernization. To
10: see how Congress funds my agency. For
0: changes to my
7: TRICARE benefits.
8: Federal News Network. Helping feds meet their mission.
6: Back
0: on the Federal Drive with Tom Temen on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. I'm Jared Serbu filling in for Tom. Congress is back from its Thanksgiving recess this week with not very much time to go before several different impending deadlines. We've talked a lot about the appropriations legislation that still needs to get done before the end of 2024. But the deadlines for some key authorization bills are creeping up even faster. Lauren Duggan is Deputy News Director at Bloomberg Government. He joins us now with what's ahead on the Hill this week. And Lauren, I guess uh, Congress is nominally back in session this week, but not a lot of indication that we're going to see a lot of progress on the floor as we're really facing kind of three different deadlines near the end of the year, right?
11: That's right. There's obviously the end of the year where some key provisions expire and that always drives action. And then there's the two key deadlines set up for next year by the stopgap bill that Congress passed right before Thanksgiving, January 19th and February 2nd. Two deadlines that once they get back from the winter holidays are really going to force a lot of action and something that Congress is going to have to reckon with, even though it doesn't seem today to have a plan to get to that point.
0: And so since I guess the first deadline, the end of the calendar year, those authorization bills that you mentioned, including the the NDAA, reasonable to expect that that's where we'll probably see most of the focus between now and the end of December?
11: That's right. The two big authorizations they'll have to deal with, one is the NDAA or Defense Authorization Act. That one they want to do by the end of the year because some of the authorities in there expire. They want to take care of issues like troop pay and um, give those... Important authorities for people to buy things going into the next year, even if they're waiting for the funding to actually come from the appropriations bill. The other one is the Federal Aviation Administration. That's operating under an extension of its authorization in addition to the CR. That currently expires December 31st, and it wasn't extended as part of that deal, I think, to keep pressure really on. The committees that need to negotiate that in the House and the Senate to make progress there. It feels like NDAA is much further along. Both chambers passed a bill, they have a similar top line, but they have some details to work out. And I think at this point, leadership is probably the key factor in figuring out how that bill is going to advance.
0: And and I think we don't even quite know how that reconciliation process would come together, right? I think in past years there's been sort of an informal conference committee. Um, And and there really wasn't a conference committee at all. Have have we seen any indication of how those two bills are going to get reconciled? Because I don't think the Senate has even named conferees.
11: They did name conferees right before they left. That was Ah. kind of the the chaser to passing the CR was to name their conferees and send that into those formal talks. Uh, The one luxury there is usually it's just the Senate Armed Services Committee that does The negotiating on behalf of the Senate, they were named, but um, what they had said right before they left is a lot of the, the big things that they could resolve as authorizers, they took care of, but some of the questions around policy writers and key things that leadership needed to weigh in on, those are the sorts of things I think we'll have to see reconciled in the next couple of weeks to get a final product that the House and the Senate can then take a vote on.
0: And then looking ahead to those next appropriations deadlines, when the CR, the laddered CR starts expiring, as far as I can tell, we've not seen a lot of indication that things are getting any easier on the appropriations front, no matter how long they delay this
11: that's i think pretty fair because if you look at how the house and the senate have approached this project the house has made a lot of progress they've passed some bills they've even gotten bills on the floor and then had to pull them back even if they didn't have the votes but they'd say look we've had a lot of progress we've had a lot of debate but there's a sizable gap between the house and senate approaches like a hundred billion dollars which is a significant amount of money and then there's the riders that the house republicans have put into the bill with bills which has actually caused some of the issues with the the final pieces of legislation where the mix of cuts and policy changes was enough that they couldn't get them across the line in the House even. So negotiating between those more partisan party line House bills and the more bipartisan bills in the Senate, that's going to be difficult. Um, the Senate has talked about doing another package of maybe four bills that would make progress, get four more bills with a chance for lawmakers to make amendments and debate what's in there. We'll see if they can get to that either this year or early next year, but getting to that final version of bills, some package of them that can get across the line into the president's desk still feels like a tall order with a lot of questions unresolved.
0: And then looking beyond authorizations and appropriations, I, I think you're watching for the Senate to make some progress on nominees. What are you looking for there this this coming week and weeks? That's
11: right. Um, Majority Leader Charles Schumer, before they let, set up a couple of votes this week on some judges, which that's been part of the effort there is to to move some judges forward, some of the remaining nominees that are there for different positions across the administration. So I would expect the Senate to chip away at that as they've done you know throughout the year. One question still hanging over a lot of this are the military promotions that have been held up by Sen- Senator Tommy Tuberville of Alabama. There was a Senate Rules Committee vote to potentially change the rules on those to allow them to move in big packages rather than one by one we'll see if that battle is rejoined here that was another thing that right before they left town republicans even if they weren't supportive immediately of the rules change were trying to put pressure to move those nominations along so that will be another busy part of the senate's agenda for the rest of the year
0: and even if we don't see much progress on the floor there are going to be some committee hearings where we'll see at least possibly some fireworks including a, a federal telework hearing coming up later this week right
11: That's right. That's been a lingering issue for House Republicans who want to see more federal workers back in office buildings downtown and around the country. They are joined in that. I mean, the administration, President Biden, has said he wants to get more people back to their desks and offices. So this will be a chance for James Comer, the oversight chairman and others on that committee to make the case. I think there's a handful of agencies we are coming up, maybe Social Security Administration, USAID and others. Um, This isn't the first time they've been on this subject. I don't think it's the last. Um, That is language that maybe we could see something around in the spending packages as well. Um, Be interesting to see how they approach that in either bills for the rest of this year next year but that question is far from resolved
0: all right lauren duggan is deputy news director at bloomberg government thanks as always lauren thank you participants in the thrift savings plan will see some changes to their investments starting in 2024 the tsp's iFund will be moving to a new benchmark index next year that change comes after a unanimous vote of approval from the federal retirement thrift investment board The new index marker will expand the iFund and should improve its risk return profile. Federal News Network's Drew Friedman got more from the TSP Board's Director of External Affairs, Kim Weaver.
5: The board regularly does fund benchmark reviews about every five to seven years just to make sure that things haven't changed and that benchmarks are still appropriate for the statutory requirements and for our participants. And so this is something we've done, as far as I'm aware, the, the length of the, the program. And we did another review this year and we hire an investment consultant and the investment consultant goes out and they look at the span of potential indexes or benchmarks. And then they start winnowing them out saying, they're not appropriate for us, right? For other people. They may be fine. And so as they have in the past, they said that the benchmarks for the C, S and the F funds were all good and shouldn't be changed. But for the I fund, we follow what's called MSCI EFA, which is Europe, Australia, Asia and Far East. And when we first started that back in 2002, it was a pretty good representation of the non-U.S. equity markets, but as emerging markets have developed and emerging countries have gotten bigger, EFA only now exposes us to about 55% of the world's equity market, and so we are moving. And I'm only going to say this full name once because it is longer than anything. We are going to be moving to the MSCI All Country World ex U.S.A. ex China X Hong Kong. Investable Market Index, and I have to say the acronym isn't much shorter. The acronym is MSCI, ACWI, IMI, XUSA, XChina, X Kong Index, all of which is to say that that exposes us to about 90% of the world's equity market. It adds in Canada. It adds in small um, cap stocks for both emerging and developed countries, and it adds in emerging markets. But as you can tell from the title, ex-Hong Kong, ex-China, it doesn't include those two localities.
10: And let's go into the reason for why those countries were excluded. I understand this is something that has been on the board's radar for quite some time
5: now. So why was that decision made? I think our investment consultant summed it up very nicely. And they said that operational complexities has increased when you invest in emerging markets given the range of events such as the Russia-Ukraine conflict and the U.S. banning any investment in in Russia, then we have banned investment in certain Chinese, we the U.S., not we the TSP, we the U.S. have banned investment in sensitive Chinese technology sectors. Certain Chinese companies have been delisted. So when you're in that kind of situation, That creates volatility and potentially performance return issues. And it also, to the extent that you have to disinvest quickly, you're going to most likely lose money because, of course, everyone else in America is disinvesting too. And so the reason we're not going into Hong Kong and China is because of the operational complexities as the investment consultant outlined
10: and just to be clear because i know there was some controversy initially early on with the transition of the i fund uh, in congress and the trump administration white house so that did not have to do with the decision to exclude those countries it was more just the market it was, itself it was
5: the fiduciary decision that our our board made after reviewing the consultants report and reviewing our staff recommendation no, it was not a political decision. They made a fiduciary decision based on actual information.
10: And other than the transition of the I Fund, I understand that the board also had its latest participant satisfaction report come out. What were some of the notable trends that you saw this year? Well,
5: I want to give some background first. We do these annual surveys, and they're run by Gallup as a contract to us. They are a snapshot in time. Then separately, our record keeper is getting um, participant feedback on a daily basis. If you do a transaction, if you take out a loan, you take out a withdrawal, you get a survey as to how satisfied you were, what issues you encountered. So the participant satisfaction survey is sort of looking at how participants felt macro-wise at this point almost a year ago. And then we're also getting the daily and they're both very useful. With that background, the most recent survey found that our participant satisfaction fell from 87 to 82%. You know, obviously, we want our participants to be satisfied with our services. So we are taking that to heart. The other thing that I think was very interesting is that Gallup correlated TSP customer satisfaction with the market. And so when the market's doing better, TSP participants are more satisfied. When the market is not doing as well, participants are less satisfied. Now, that's not obviously the sole driver of participant satisfaction, but I certainly know that when I look at my balance and it's down, I'm like, eh. and you know, you just sort of have an overall uh moment. So, what I'm trying to say, I think, is that the survey is a useful tool and we try and integrate all the data. And so, for example, participants very much are driven by the security of TSP.gov. You know, again, we've got information about them. We've got information about their investments. They want us to be secure and we absolutely want to make that happen. They want to have good information on TSP.gov. They wanna be able to roll over money in and out of the TSP. And as we've talked about, I think before, Our new record keeper starting in june of 2022 started offering a concierge service to help people roll money into the tsp also a driver of satisfaction is the annual account statements so with that in mind it focuses where we're we're looking And then, again, we take into account what we're hearing on a daily basis. And Kim, I'll just ask one last question of
10: you. I know that you really closely track uh, Congress and everything that's happening with legislation that might impact the TSP or the uh, Federal Retirement Thrift Investment Board. Is there anything recently that you've seen or anything that you're still tracking at this point in the year?
5: Yeah, there's one provision that we are tracking. There's a provision in the Financial Services General Government Appropriations Bill, the House uh, version that would say no mutual fund in our mutual fund window could be there if it made decisions based on ESG criteria. Again, as we've discussed, there's about 4,600 mutual funds in the mutual fund window. They're Vanguard funds, they're Fidelity funds, they're Schwab funds. We have no control over them and we don't have the ability to police 4,600 mutual funds. And so that that is a serious problem and concern. And so we're just, as you know, the, appropri- <laughs> the appropriations process is a little murky right now. So trying to figure out what's going to happen with individual bills, that's what we're tracking to make sure that people are aware of the concerns there.
0: That's Kim Weaver, Director of External Affairs at the Federal Retirement Thrift Investment Board, speaking there with Federal News Network's Drew Friedman.